0: I'm Lara
1: Holman. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to be back with you this week on what is quite an emotional episode today because I'm joined for her final Undercurrents by my co host, Lara. Lara, how are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good and sad, you know, leaving Chatham House is a big deal, but I'm also excited for the next chapter.
1: It's kind of sad because you you started off this year on Undercurrents and you've done some amazing episodes, but now it just feels like you just started. <laughs> but I am I'm really enjoyed these episodes that we've done so far and thanks for your work on it. And you've done some amazing stuff with the Global Health Programme. What's been your highlight of the last few months here at Chatham House?
0: I think in the last few months, we've had this major research on the solidarity and the COVID-19 response led by my colleague, Afifa Raman Shepherd, And um, it's about to be published. So readers can read it. It's been fun to talk to different key global health stakeholders about, you know, the COVID response, where was solidarity? Was there solidarity? Mm. So just contributing to that has been great.
1: Oh, yeah, it sounds super interesting. We will share a link in the show notes to this episode. So you guys can all download it. But let's talk a bit about this week then. Who did you speak to, Lara?
0: I spoke to Hans Kunani, our colleague on the Euro Programme. Hans is a senior research fellow there. And we talked about Angela Merkel and her leaving as a chancellor. And I think for me as a German, it was really interesting to chat to him about her legacy. I wasn't eligible to vote back in 2005 when her government first started. So, you know, she's really had an impact on German politics. And we talked about her legacy and what's to come. How about you? Who did you talk to, Ben?
1: Yeah, so I was joined by two people this week. Firstly, by Thomas Hughes, who is the director of the Oversight Board Administration. The Oversight Board is a body that scrutinizes decisions made by Facebook. And they're very much involved in this whole debate about content moderation online at the moment, which is becoming more and more contentious. And I spoke to Thomas with Kate Jones, who's an Associate Fellow in our International Law Program, and we spoke to him about the recent decision to suspend the account of former President Donald Trump from Facebook. So you'll hear that interview first, and then we'll get on to Merkel's departure. So I hope you enjoy listening. So now for this interview, I'm delighted to be joined by two guests, very lucky for me, to discuss some recent developments in this issue that we've touched on before on the podcast of content moderation and social media platforms and the governance of these platforms. Obviously, these issues came to a head very prominently earlier this year in January, when in the aftermath of the US election, President Trump was actually removed from most social media platforms due to the content that he was posting and Facebook was one such platform and since then there has been a very wide-ranging debate about whether these social media platforms were right to remove a head of state or a past head of state from their platforms and what that means for the digital public sphere and so in response to this decision and to other wider long-standing questions of content moderation An organisation was formed called the Oversight Board, which is intended to provide scrutiny and oversight of content moderation decisions for Facebook. And I'm really delighted today that I've been joined by Thomas Hughes, who is the Director of Oversight Board Administration, the executive team behind the Oversight Board, and also by Kate Jones, who is an Associate Fellow in our International Law Programme. To talk about the work of the Oversight Board and the Trump decision in particular, but more broadly what this means for content moderation. So thanks both of you for joining me today. If I could just begin, Thomas, maybe you could tell us a bit
2: about how the Oversight Board works and what its purpose is. Ben, well firstly thank you very much for the invitation to join you today, it's a real pleasure. So the Oversight Board is an independent body that's comprised of board members from from all around the world uh, with quite a diverse range of backgrounds and and ideological perspectives. And we were set up to make um, binding decisions on what content Facebook and Instagram should allow or remove based both on Facebook's community standards but also on respect for freedom of speech and human rights. The purpose of the board is, is essentially to provide a mechanism for users to appeal cases or for Facebook to refer cases And then, you know, to have an outside entity rule on the outcome of those individual cases. What I would like to stress at the outset here is I don't work for Facebook, nor do the board members work for Facebook. uh, And the board was not set up to represent the financial or reputational interests of the company. We were established as as an independent check to provide guidance on how Facebook and Instagram conduct their their content moderation practices. So, So let me also say a few words about how the board operates. So Facebook and Instagram users can appeal to the board to both restore and to remove content. And they can appeal any piece of content that is currently already appealable under the community standards. And I can say a little bit more about that later if if you'd like. But they can only appeal, of course, once they've exhausted the internal mechanisms within Facebook. And as, as I mentioned earlier, Facebook can also refer cases that they think are particularly significant or difficult to the board as well. To select cases, board members look for those that that represent significant, difficult content moderation issues uh, and that have the potential to affect um, lots of users around the world. They also look for issues that are of critical importance to public discourse or issues that raise important questions about Facebook's policies or or content moderation practices. I should note that Facebook can raise legal obligations relating to a case, i.e. they can withdraw it, as it were, from the queue. This is foreseen only in exceptional circumstances, just to be clear, just to describe what those circumstances look like. So they can remove content if it was not removed for the community standards violation and Facebook has received a valid report of illegality, so essentially a court order, or where the content is criminally unlawful and could lead to criminal liability, or where the content is unlawful and could lead to regulatory sanctions. So it's quite a specific test and, and it's important to elaborate that test because there will be certain circumstances in which the board continues to hear a case and that you know that that may throw up questions around national legislation and so on and, and finally uh there's also a pathway whereby facebook can request guidance on their community standards and then the, the you know the board will then consider what changes might be appropriate to those standards and and publish uh, or share publicly its response so just a couple of words about how the process kind of works so after the selection of a case five board members Uh, including at least one board member from the region where the content was posted those five initially hear the case and they evaluate if facebook followed their own community standards and the facebook values and then they also look at the intersection between those and international human rights standards after that the the panel they write their decision that decision then goes to the full board for a review and a vote and the decision is either adopted or not based on a majority vote in each case, the board decides uh, whether the content should be reinstated to Facebook or Instagram, or it should stay down. And that component of the decision is binding on Facebook, and they must implement that within seven days. And then the other component is that the board can offer policy guidance to Facebook on its community standards. And whilst those are only recommendations, they're not binding, Facebook still has to respond publicly to those within 30 days. So so that, very briefly, is, is the functions and how it works. Thanks so much, Thomas. That's really very clear. And I just wonder if you could,
1: just a a quick one, could you give us a sense of the scale of the queue that you mentioned? How
2: many cases are you seeing sort of being brought forward? How many things are being referred? So since launch, which was late last year, we've received over 300,000 appeals from users and a couple of dozen referrals from Facebook. Well, all of the data around those appeals and the referrals Will be shared as part of our transparency reporting and and we're working on the first iteration of that should come out hopefully sometime after the summer before the end of the year those then get triaged by a team within the administration that supports what's called the case selection committee which is five board members Uh, and they essentially you know using a set of both overarching and specific criteria they whittle those down to a a long list review that long list whittle it down further to a shortlist, pick out the cases that adhere to those criteria which I described briefly earlier, and then those cases are the ones that are assigned. And and as you can see, just from the number of case decisions that we've published already, approximately a dozen, Quite quite a large number coming down to quite a small specific number. Kate, I'd like to come to you now, and obviously you're very much
1: embedded in the kind of international legal and human rights communities that are debating these kind of organisations and, and structures. I just wondered if you could give us a sense of how the Oversight Board was received by those communities upon creation. What's been the review <laughs> so far?
3: Well, Ben, as as Thomas, it's a pleasure to be here today. I would say that when the Oversight Board was established, it was established in order to address a real concern about the preservation of the important human right of freedom of expression in the face of Facebook having to engage in lots of content moderation to make sure that hate speech and speech inciting violence and other troubling speech wasn't left up on its platforms. And Facebook engaged a lot of consultation around the world before it set up the board, which was good and then has put this into place to try to provide an independent set of review of content moderation decisions, as Thomas has outlined. And I would say that when the board was set up, there were two principal sets of criticisms about it. And before getting to those, I would say that this is really difficult stuff. Deciding on content moderation is really hard, and deciding how to oversee it is also hard, because nothing like this has been done before, although there are some analogies which we can talk about later. So the first set of criticisms was some people said, well, the oversight board should be scrapped because it's too close to Facebook, because it was established by Facebook, it's funded by Facebook, it may be having informal conversations with Facebook. And we've just heard from Thomas about the independence that the oversight board has. And what I would say is that what we've seen from the decisions it's issued to date is that it is showing that independence robustly it's making recommendations that are really quite probing of Facebook. And we're also seeing Facebook taking a mature approach to responding to those recommendations. And the second set of criticisms when the board was announced was that basically this is a window dressing exercise, that you put this board in place, it gives an appearance of accountability for Facebook, and meanwhile, Facebook can continue with its commercial development apace. Now, It it is the case that there are many issues about Facebook and social media platforms that need to be addressed, and we'll come on to those. But the fact that there are wider issues isn't a reason to scrap the Oversight Board. From what we've seen so far, the Oversight Board is doing good things. It is establishing maturity in Facebook's content moderation processes by encouraging Facebook to have clear and transparent rules on content moderation, and to apply them consistently consistently and to have a consistent appeals process. So in the absence of an independent regulator, in the absence of legislation and independent oversight established by the state, which we'll come on to, it's filling a gap that needed to be filled. That's not to say that it's dealing with all the challenges that face our social media platforms in general, or Facebook in particular.
1: Yeah, thank you, Kate, absolutely. And we will be coming back to some of those bigger questions later in the discussion. But for now, I'd like to turn to the case study that I mentioned at the top of the interview regarding the suspension of President Donald Trump's account on Facebook. And that's recently been one of the decisions that the Oversight Board has, has had to make. There was an announcement on the 5th of May this year about that decision. And Thomas, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the context to that and also what the decision was, what the
2: determination of the board was in regards to this case. Yes, so so the case was a referral from Facebook, and essentially the referral was to ask the board to consider and decide whether the indefinite suspension of former President Trump on the 7th of January for posts that were made on the 6th of January was the correct decision, and then to make recommendations about what uh, political leaders and heads of state, what the applicable standards are to be applied to such individuals uh, looking forward. And the board essentially found that the suspension of former President Trump was, in fact, necessary to keep people safe. Trump's actions on social media did encourage and legitimize violence and were therefore, by extension, a severe violation of Facebook's rules. But obviously, the the crucial component here is that the board also rejected the indefinite suspension as a penalty that Facebook had applied and said that Facebook must apply rules that are clear, consistent and transparent. And that is an element of the decision, which is not new to this decision. That is something that the board has said through its previous decisions, and I assume will continue to say in future decisions, depending on on the actions of Facebook. What the board was essentially um, driving at in that decision is that what Facebook did was invent an arbitrary penalty with no clear criteria, which meant that Facebook was acting on that particular penalty enforcing that penalty at its total discretion. And anyone who essentially was concerned about the powers of Facebook should be concerned with the company making decisions that are outside of its own published rules. So what the board said was within six months, Facebook has to re-examine the indefinite suspension that it imposed, has to impose a new penalty that's consistent with its rules, and that considers the prospect for future harm. And that that penalty could be anything within those rules from permanently removing the account or imposing a, a new suspension. And the board also said that within that period, if Facebook does, and this takes us to the recommendations, if Facebook does in implement some of the recommendations, and there's, there's quite a long uh, list of various recommendations, then it could also take those into consideration at that time. Now, in that future, looking at context, I mean, all of the recommendations are important, but there's one that I will highlight, which is essentially that Facebook should consider a harms test. It should consider the potential for incitement to imminent violence, uh, discrimination, and lawless action. And the board outlined what they call a six factors, but this, a six part test, which is derived from uh, international standards, which were part of their Rabat plan of action and you know, are referenced elsewhere in, in UN documents, but essentially provided quite a specific set of criteria that Facebook could and should use when considering potential harms. The other aspect of the decision I would highlight is that the board highlighted the importance of political speech, but also made it clear that you know influential users and political leaders don't have a greater set of uh, rights to free speech, uh, and that the same rules vis-a-vis the community standards and the same set of penalties should be applied, but that those should be applied within the context of the speech itself. And obviously, influential users and political leaders have a greater audience you know, their impact of their speech can be assumed to be larger and so on. So those are factors that should be taken into consideration. And very importantly, when making these decisions, Facebook should also consider that there will be political opposition dissidents and others who governments may be trying to silence and obviously should resist pressure from governments to act to silence such individuals as well. One
1: thing that I wanted to put to you, which is potentially something that's been leveled at, at Facebook around this decision, that and and I wondered if the Oversight Board had any kind of input on this or or any kind of take on this, I suppose, which is in the prioritisation of cases that are referred to the board for for deliberation, was there an extent to which this particular action to suspend President Trump was driven by political concerns in the United States because of the prominence around the election and and the inauguration of, of President Biden and all of these Things that meant that in some way a US case was deemed to be more important than perhaps the actions of heads of state on Facebook from other countries who may have said just as inflammatory things, but because the spotlight wasn't on them in such a way, Facebook didn't act. Is there a worry that perhaps Facebook was almost sort of politicised
2: by the context of the US election? I, I can't really speak to the internal considerations within Facebook because as a, a point that Kate made at the start... We are a separate entity. We we do, not, we do not trade information or have discussions with them, as it were, behind the scenes about cases. What I would say is that, that this is not the first case that the board took that related to a head of state or former head of state. Uh, and in fact, the very first case related to a former Malaysian head of state. But for technical reasons, uh, that was pulled from the queue. I can describe what those technical reasons are, but it essentially involved a third party who deleted their content and therefore the content that was posted underneath got deleted as well. So this, is, this was not the first time The board had wanted to take a case that related to a a political leader. And the other thing I would say is that the very points that the board is making about transparency and consistency and clarity in decision making would help the world understand Facebook's decision making processes, would help to demonstrate that if it is or is not the case that political or commercial or economic interests are driving decision making to clarify that, so, you know, we, we from the Oversight Board perspective, very much hope that Facebook take that on board, because it will help the world to see and understand what decisions are being taken and why and the principles that underpin them. Thank you. Yeah. Kate, I'd like to come back to you now. And,
1: and obviously, at, at the start of this interview, you, you laid out some potential concerns that the human rights community had raised about the Oversight Board. And I just wondered if you could tell us what we've learned about those concerns through the the scrutiny that's been placed on the trump decision by the board what does this reveal about the process have we learned anything about the limits of the board's power its independence what's your reaction to the decision
3: thank you ben well i think we learn we see the board exercising its independence and doing so in quite a muscular way because the recommendations that it makes to facebook are quite far reaching And incidentally, Facebook has until the 4th of June to respond to those recommendations. So it will be very interesting to see to what extent they are taken up. And for me, as a human rights lawyer, one of the great things about this decision, and indeed the other oversight board's decisions, is that the board looks at Facebook's policies, but also looks closely at human rights law in making its decisions. And really, follows the path that international human rights law sets out. Now, some commentators have said that this isn't an appropriate paradigm for the Oversight Board to be following because human rights law, strictly speaking, binds states and not companies. But the fact is that human rights law offers the best conceptual framework that we have for balancing rights such as freedom of expression on the one hand, with other issues such as national security, morals, public order on the other. And Americans are perhaps a little bit less used to using that framework to decide specific cases. But in Europe, thanks to the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, and then all the national jurisprudence that flows from that, we're very used to seeing that kind of balancing act being done. And we also see that on the whole, it works. It doesn't make difficult decisions, easy decisions, but it does offer a path for reaching those decisions. And it's interesting to see that the way that the Oversight Board frames its decisions actually has a bit in common with how the European Court of Human Rights proceeds and its judgments. And so you're following a similar route through that balancing act. So I think that critique is misplaced. But on the other hand, there are some major challenges about the application of human rights law here and for Facebook in its content moderation. One is that human rights requires the balancing of rights against things that are matters that are in the public interest. And and Facebook being a private entity doesn't actually have the democratic mandate or necessarily the visibility of say national security issues or public health issues that a government does. So for a private entity to be doing that balancing is really tricky. Secondly, human rights requires making judgments in cultural contexts. What freedom of expression requires in the US might be different from what is required in Myanmar or in Turkey or in any other country. And you can see Facebook and the board grappling with that in a recent decision of the oversight board it was about a post that appeared to be denying the Armenian genocide. But in fact, when the oversight board looked at it, they found that it wasn't denying the Armenian genocide, but was actually a critique of Turkish comment on the Armenian genocide, so something very different. And without an appreciation of that cultural context, very hard for the initial content moderator to to understand that. And in an upcoming oversight board case, the board itself has asked for public comment on the context in Myanmar, which again, it's good that the board recognizes they need that context, but really hard for a small body of individuals to be trying to decide on these cases from all over the world. So that's a real challenge for the board to be grappling with. Thirdly, sometimes just human rights law and Facebook's policies might not necessarily be enough. If, for example, a political leader in another country says, look, you need to take down such and such content, otherwise we're not going to allow Facebook in this country anymore, that presents a real problem to Facebook. And it's a problem that probably needs to be grappled with openly and not swept under the carpet by saying we're only going to look at human rights issues and Facebook policies. So these are some of the challenges with applying human rights law. Um, But nonetheless, as I say, it remains the best conceptual framework that we have and a really important one. But the other general point I wanted to say, and Ben, if I may, is that having the Oversight Board doesn't resolve all the challenges concerning social media platforms in general or Facebook in particular and political speech and other forms of speech. And the Oversight Board really has stepped in because states, that's governments, have failed so far to regulate social media companies. We have to find a way to remove manipulation or reduce manipulation from platforms while preserving freedom of expression. And it's really for governments to do that because it's governments that are democratically accountable and governments that have the power to be doing that and so far we're not yet seeing that we're now seeing some proposals in the eu some proposals in the uk we're seeing steps emerging but we really need to see governments stepping up to regulate what kind of social media environment we want that preserves human rights while avoiding or minimizing some of the, the challenges that we're seeing from social media
1: thank you kate i'm conscious of time but thomas i just wanted to ask for your reflections on a couple of things that Kate mentioned there. One is this question of the role of states and whether we need more regulation from governments around content moderation and platform governance, or, or whether you think that independent bodies like the Oversight Board can provide that sort of structure and accountability. And then secondly, I wanted also to know about this point that Kate raised about the limits of the scope of the Oversight Board in terms of looking at cases of Sort of human rights-based cases and, and whether there is any value in your eyes in broadening the remit of the board to look at other aspects of the
2: activities of Facebook? In relation to the regulatory question, I mean, I think as we see, you know, around the world, but obviously with, the, you know, currently with the focus on the Digital Services Act in, in the EU, forms of either self or co-regulatory or statutory um, regulatory mechanisms are, are coming. You know, I think the, the, the framing of this has to be, or there has to be consideration of the fact that when we talk about or speak about content on social media, uh, we're not only referring to content produced by entities or journalistic content, but we're talking about individual speech rights as well. And, you know, whatever kind of co- or statutory regulatory framework is created, you know, has to be cognizant of that, has to be aware of that, so that we don't end up having greater you know, direct regulation by governments of speech online, as compared to the offline scenario. Kate spoke about some uh, analogies or, or frameworks that can be used when considering, you know, what this will look like. And and the one that I would immediately draw from is is press regulation. I mean, there are other forms of regulation there, and then and I should point out there are other forms of regulation which uh, already apply to social media companies that do impact content, maybe not directly content moderation per se, but whether it be uh, advertising or privacy or so on and so forth so it's not an entirely unregulated space here we're talking you know quite narrowly about what to do specifically in relation to content regulation but if you draw from some of the principles that underpin press regulation they do start with you know that if proper independent multi-stakeholder self-regulatory bodies can be created and if they're effective they are the best departure point and should you know should be the the, the mechanism that is used you know, broadcast regulation was always given a slightly different context because, you know, spectrum was limited and impact was considered to be increased through through broadcast media. But but those principles do not apply to the internet. They do not apply to individual speech. So I think we are looking inevitably at a, not necessarily complex, but but a regulatory space where there is a mix of some statutory requirements, maybe some co-regulation, and I hope some self-regulation. And I don't see those things as contradictory. And I would personally hope that the kind of Co-regulation or regulatory space we look at in the future focuses more on transparency and accountability rather than actually delving into specific forms of harm and regulating specifically, as I say, and and creating new standards that are then applied to individual speech. That I hope can be left to the self-regulatory structures that are created by social media companies, of which I think there should be a, a multitude. You know, I, I would encourage all companies who who deal with and have content as part of their business model, or just part of their service, to ensure that they do have some kind of really proper, substantive, self-regulatory mechanism. The the board was created to look at content moderation. It's got a very clear mandate. I think the scope is already very broad. The segment of, or the size of, or the number of pieces of content that the board could potentially look at, and, and the breadth of the community standards is enormous already. We already have newer areas coming into scope in terms of you know, appeals now to take down content, as well as content to remain. Uh, We are in active conversation with Facebook about how to build out the types of content that we could actually look at. But I do not think it would be relevant for the board to, you know, extend across into, you know, looking at areas, which, you know, which basically delve more into maybe the business model of the company, and so on and so forth. There are other forms of regulation that I think would be more applicable to questions of that nature. Thank you very much. I'd just
1: like to give the final word to Kate. And I wanted to zoom out a bit, Kate, and just maybe reiterate at the end of this conversation why these questions matter so much. There's potentially a view, I suppose, that the bodies that we're talking about here are private companies, you know, what they do on their platforms to an extent is if as long as they're making money, they have responsibilities to their shareholders, as long as they're not doing anything actually illegal, we should just let them run themselves. But Then again, we are increasingly talking about platforms as this kind of public sphere. It's sort of beyond these organisations because of their size, particularly in terms of the users, I suppose. They really are sort of becoming significant forums for political and social debate across the world. So could you maybe tell us sort of at the end here why it is so important that we get this kind of moderation right and why this regulation really matters?
3: Yes, thanks, Ben. I think first, just briefly to follow up on what Thomas was saying, I completely agree that media regulation offers really interesting precedents to look at here, not least because it applies to more than one company. Of course, the challenge with having an oversight board just for Facebook is that content that's not allowed on Facebook can drift off to other platforms where there are less rigorous standards. And I also agree that we shouldn't be looking to reframe what speech is permissible. The question is how you deal with manipulation, really, rather than than freedom of expression, which, of course, is vitally important. And I would say, actually, that I see little signs of the Oversight Board pushing on this a bit. So one of its uh, recommendations in this Trump case is for Facebook to undertake a comprehensive review of its contribution to, and I quote, the narrative of electoral fraud and the exacerbated tensions that culminated in the violence in the United States on the sixth of January. This should be an open reflection on the design and policy choices that Facebook has made that may allow its platform to be abused. End of quote. I think that's really interesting. If Facebook takes up that recommendation, we may see a much more transparent look from the company than previously into what impact it may have had on the election, and indeed then on elections generally around the world. And that leads me into your question, which is that the rise of social media is having enormous impact on how we relate with each other. And in the political domain, where obviously the Trump decision is, it's potentially having really significant impact on how people form their political opinions and how they express their political opinions and we've seen this expressed for some years now really beginning with the US election back in 2016 and we need to really come get to grips with how as a society we want social media to be playing a role to what extent and how we want it to be shaping how we think and where we draw the limits of that And that is where states come in in in, in deciding where those limits should be.
1: Kate, thank you very much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I hope we can return to it again in the future. Thomas Hughes, Director of the Oversight Board Administration, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, also to you, Kate, thanks. Hope to have you on soon. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you.
0: I'm joined today by my colleague Hans Kunani, who's a senior research fellow at the Euro program here at Chatham House. Before joining Chatham House, Hans was Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund in the United States and research director at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's also an associate fellow at the Institute for German Studies at Birmingham University. And in 2016, he was a Bosch Public Policy Fellow in the transatlantic academy in washington dc and in 2014 he published his book the paradox of german power if you want to give that a read thanks so much for joining me today hans
4: thanks for having me
0: so we'll be talking about all things germany today because on 26th of september the german citizen will elect a new government and for the first time since 2005 the current chancellor angela merkel will not be the candidate for the christian democratic union or be running at all In the next 20 or so minutes, I'd love to find out from you what that means for the election, for Germany, for the EU, for the world. So kicking off with let's find out more about Merkel, what type of a leader was she?
4: That's a good question, because it gets to the heart of, I think, some of the different ways in which Merkel is perceived. I think a lot of people think of her as a wonderful leader and, you know, as a real leader, somebody who took a moral stand, particularly during the refugee crisis, And after the election of Trump, you know, there were lots of people calling her the new leader of the free world and and, and so on. So, you know, in other words, a real leader. That's not how I see Merkel at all. In fact, you know, it seems to me that she hasn't really led at all in in any real meaningful sense. What she's done for the last 16 years has been to embody a consensus in Germany. You know, I, I call this the Merkel consensus and she's the embodiment of it. You know, she's constantly gone with the flow of public opinion. One of the things we know about Merkel is that she's constantly doing focus groups and so on. And, you know, she's not always got it right in terms of the way in which she's anticipated the direction that German public opinion is going in. She's mostly got it right. But in any case, her political skill, I think, has been to embody this consensus in the centre ground of German politics rather than to really lead... Germany in any, in any particular direction herself, I find it very difficult to find any issues on which she's taken a stand. And even the refugee crisis, which is the example that most people usually point to, I think actually she didn't really lead on that either. We can get into that, you know, if you're interested later on.
0: Yes, I was actually going to say, you know, the refugee crisis, also Fukushima, the exiting of nuclear power, was something that some might describe as some of those rare and bold decisions that she did take. But looking at the polls, it was actually, again, just following the consensus of the German people. So if we then take the next step, what will she be remembered for? Is there anything or will she be remembered? How will she be remembered? We have Adenauer, who obviously had the Westbindung join in the NATO. We had Brandt with his Ostpolitik sort of appeasing to the Eastern European powers and call, of course, reunification, joining the Eurozone. So what's, if we we were having this podcast in 50 years time, how would you remember Merkel?
4: Yeah, that's another really good question. And I think actually the fascinating thing is we don't know yet, and especially in relation to Europe, because, you know, Merkel's time as chancellor, at least the, you know, from 2010 onwards, she was elected in 2005. But from 2010 onwards, it's been really dominated by this decade of crises that that Europe has has gone through. And, And so I think a lot of how historians will look back on Merkel will revolve around how she is perceived to have handled this series of crises within the European Union. But the fascinating thing, I think, is that we don't actually know whether she will go down as being... The woman who saved the EU or the woman who destroyed the EU? It seems to me that actually both of those completely opposite views about Merkel's relationship with the EU could turn out to be correct, I think. I tend to a more negative view of of Merkel in relation to the EU. I think, you know, actually it's been a big tragedy for the European Union that at the moment when it needed a more visionary leader who did show real leadership, and in particular to lead German public opinion rather than following it, that, that actually you know, the EU had Merkel at that, at that moment. I think this has, you know, in a way been the tragedy of the EU in the last decade. But, you know, as I say, it, it is kind of open-ended. and It's quite amazing that, that she could go down either as the, the woman who saved the EU or the woman who destroyed the EU. One other thing I should add, though, is that regardless of what you think about that question, I think one very concrete legacy that Merkel leaves behind has to do with the transformation of German politics internally that's happened. And one aspect of that is the way that, you know, for three of the last four electoral periods that she's been in power, she's led a grand coalition. And previously to that, before 2005, there'd only ever been one grand coalition in the history of the Federal Republic, and that was between 1966 and 1969. It was a moment of great political turmoil. The far right and the far left, you know, basically became much, much stronger as a response to that grand coalition. And so people were quite conscious, I think, of the dangers of grand coalitions that pushes political opposition to the extremes. And the far right and the far left often become stronger as a result of this perception that the centrist parties are kind of forming a, a block. As I say, though, what you've now had over the last, you know, 16 years is that the grand coalitions have become almost the norm in German politics, three out of the last four electoral periods. And one of the consequences of that has been the emergence of the AFD, the Alternative für Deutschland, which as of four years ago, the last general election in Germany is now not just in the Bundestag, the first time a far-right party has has been in the Bundestag since the creation of the Federal Republic, but it's now the official opposition or the leading opposition party because of the Grand Coalition. They're the third biggest party in the Bundestag after the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, and are therefore now the leading opposition party. And it does seem as if the the, the AFD is here to stay. It's not going to disappear from the Bundestag after this election. Uh, And so I think one very, very concrete legacy that Merkel leaves behind is the presence of a far-right party in the the Bundestag for the first time since the creation of the Federal Republic.
0: If I can just quickly jump back to the EU, because some have also argued that in the last 18 months during the pandemic, Angela Merkel or the German government allowing the EU bloc to raise the common debt in capital markets for the very first time is actually, you know, has prevented the sort of defragmentation of the EU. So do you think that actually the COVID pandemic and quite solid leadership during at least the early months of the COVID pandemic, I think the last six months, many Germans, including myself, will disagree that the German government has done like a really good job at managing it. But will the early great management of the COVID-19 pandemic, including the potential saving of the EU in 2020, will that come to our benefit? Will that lift her up a bit?
4: Well, again, we'll, we'll see what impact the creation of the recovery from so, so-called next generation EU has and we may not know for a while. Again, I'm afraid I'm rather skeptical that it is as big of a deal as some people claim that it is. There are two ways in which it could be a big deal, two ways in which people argue that it is a sort of a game changer. The first is just in terms of the sheer scale of investment. Um, But actually there, I think it's fairly clear that if you look at the figures, it's not really that significant in macroeconomic terms. You know, in other words, as a fiscal stimulus, certainly when you compare it to what the United States has done, this is you know not really that that significant. The second way, though, in which some people think that it's important is in terms of as a precedent for further European integration. You know, so Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, who by the way is the the Social Democrat candidate in the in the general election in the autumn, he went so far as to call it the Hamiltonian moment. In other words. Something that was analogous to the moment in which the United States took on the the debts of the the southern US states and in effect created the United States. And this is something that, you know, pro-Europeans, particularly federalists, sort of dreamed about for for a long time. But there again, I mean, this is, I think, where we will have to really wait and see to what extent it does become a precedent. And and maybe you will have to wait for quite a long time. again my my instinct is that it it can't really be a precedent in the way that Olaf Scholz was talking about partly because the Christian Democrats have made it clear that that's not what they want and Armin Laschet the Christian Democrat candidate has reiterated this already during the campaign that this should be a one-off but even if you know a Christian Democrat candidate for Chancellor or Chancellor had a different view on that it seems to me that the German Constitutional Court has made it absolutely clear in a series of rulings over the last decade, that open-ended debt mutualization in the eurozone is unconstitutional, um, and so I, I just don't see that any German politician can actually really make this this happen. So, you know, I think this will remain a, a, a one-off. I, I'm I'm rather sceptical that it is the kind of transformational moment in the history of European integration that that some people claim and hope that it is.
0: Before diving a bit more into the candidates that we have, you've already mentioned Laschet, Scholz, let's look a bit at actually the Germany that they will inherit. So, you know, in her long time, being 16 years, being ranked or voted one of the most trusted world's leaders in the world, frequently being rated among the top 10 most powerful women, deservingly so or not you know, Germany is taking over the next year's G7 presidency. We're still battling COVID-19 all over the world. Um, Within the EU, there is tensions. The UK's transition agreement, you know, just ended six months ago. So what's the Germany like that the next chancellor will inherit? And how does it compare to the Germany in 2005, like the, so to say, pre-Merkel Germany that she inherited?
4: The, the way I, I would think about Germany now, and, and again, this is, I think, sort of broadly the consensus that exists in the centre ground of German politics, includes the Christian Democrats, includes the Social Democrats, it even includes the the Greens, who are likely to be one of the coalition partners in the next government. I think in a way, what Germany wants is to go back to how things used to be five or ten years ago in the world. Almost everything that's happened in the world, Brexit, Trump, the refugee crisis, etc., I think Germans in general just want things to go back to how they, they used to be. There isn't really a sort of forward looking vision for how things should change in the world and how Germany should change. I sort of often have this feeling when I look at Germany now that it's surrounded by this world that is in flux and a Europe that's in flux as well. And Germans are just sort of trying to continue doing the same things that they've, they've always done. I think probably the one slight exception to that is around climate change. I think, you know, there is in Germany a very strong consciousness about the dangers of climate change, probably one of the greenest countries in the world, at least rhetorically. I mean, we can ask difficult questions about what Germany is doing in practice, but certainly Germans talk about this a lot and, and they like to think of themselves as being very committed to preventing climate change. Um, But even there, it's quite interesting because I think that to a large extent, what Germany wants to do, and I think in particular, a black green or green black government, in other words, a government of Christian Democrats and the Greens, I think what their vision is in terms of climate change is to try to stop climate change worsening, but for sort of everything else to stay the same. And in particular, for the German economy, you know, which is this very manufacturing-based economy, which is very energy intensive, with the car industry at the center of that, they want to sort of continue to have an economy that looks very, very similar, it continues to ex- manufacture and export all of the same things around the world, even as that's being challenged in all kinds of ways, in particular in relation to, to China, which has been one of the big export markets that's, that's grown for Germany over the last 10 years. They want basically for all of that to continue, but for that manufacturing industry, in particular the automotive industry, to slightly reinvent itself in a green kind of way. So you'd have electric cars and so on. But Germany would still dominate, you know, the, the the automotive industry and would still export its electric cars around the world. That I think is roughly the the kind of vision. So you know, basically it's a very kind of not just a status quo power, but now at this point I think it's a status quo anti power. In other words, you know, so much now has changed, but Germany sort of slightly wants to go back to, to how things used to be.
0: Let's look a bit more at the main options of the candidates that we do have. So we have Armin Laschet from Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, already mentioned by you, as well as Olaf Scholz, who's the current uh, finance minister, but also vice chancellor. So we're in close collaboration running the government right now with Angela Merkel and then we have the Greens, anna Baerbock. So will they be able to step into Merkel's shoes? And, you know, will they be able to lead to change if they so want to? And would they want to change something?
4: Yeah, I, I guess my, my answer would be yes, they can absolutely step into Merkel's shoes because as I said at the beginning, unlike most people, I don't see those shoes as being very big. In fact, I think her skill was to manage this kind of coalition and embody this, this consensus. And I think all of those three candidates that you've mentioned, Laschet, Baerbock and Schultz, I think what you're looking at, if, if any of the three of them were to be Chancellor, is broadly continuity. Uh, there isn't going to be a dramatic change in any policy area as far as I can see. Um, and that's partly to do with the coalition the sort of permutation of, of uh, permutations of coalitions. But it's partly also structural in German politics um, that there's a kind of sense in which even when you don't have a grand coalition in German politics, as you've had in the last, you know, three of the four last electoral periods, you sort of still do have a grand coalition, which partly has to do with the the role that the Bundesrat, the upper house plays and all of the checks and balances in the German system, which which pushes you towards consensus in in a way that doesn't exist in in Britain or in the United States. And, And I think it's also worth stressing with that in mind that, You know, we tend in Britain and the United States, when we look at German politics, to focus on these candidates. But actually, you know, I I think you said, Laura, at the beginning that, you know, German citizens will elect a new government. I mean, actually, German citizens don't elect a new government. German citizens elect a new Bundestag and the Bundestag elects a new government. This isn't as as personalized a kind of election as as is the case, certainly in the US, but even in, in the UK. So you know, Lachette in particular is the, is, you know, the continuity candidate, you know, the Christian Democrats, there were, there were two other candidates who could have represented a little bit of a break in different respects, but Laschet, won, very much seen as, as, a, as a continuation of Merkel's approach. He is a little bit, perhaps if anything, a little bit uh, less hawkish on China and Russia, uh, even than Merkel was. And so you know, I think there are lots of, question, lots of questions now being asked about, you know, the transatlantic relationship if um, Laschet were to be chancellor. But broadly, um, nothing will change very much un, under Laschet. And certainly as far as the EU goes, there's not going to be a significant change there in terms of German policy towards the eurozone. So, for example, there isn't going to be some, you know, sudden push towards rethinking the fiscal rules in the in the Eurozone, as the French, for example, might hope there's going to be. And, and then, you know, Olaf Scholz, you know, as you said, is Vice-Chancellor. So he's also sort of a figure who he, who's, who's very much associated with the Grand Coalition, very much a centrist. When he became German Finance Minister four years ago, you know, he famously said when he was asked whether there would be a shift in Germany's economic policy and its policy in relation to the Eurozone, now that a Social Democrat was becoming... Finance minister. He famously said, a German finance minister is a German finance minister, and party affiliation doesn't change that. In other words, signalling that he was going to continue exactly the policies that Wolfgang Schäuble, who had been his predecessor, had, had pursued. Now there have been some there has been a slight shift in in German economic policy, but but nothing, you know, hugely significant, I don't think. And that then finally brings us to Annalena Baerbock, who, you know, a few months ago there was this sudden flurry of excitement uh, based on some polling that suggested that she might actually be the next chancellor, that the Greens might be the biggest party in the Bundestag, and that therefore she would be uh, the next chancellor. The, The polls now look a little different. They've kind of reverted back to the norm, and that now seems fairly unlikely. And in fact, what has happened to Annalena Baerbock looks a lot like what happened to Martin Schulz, the Social Democrat candidate four years ago, where he got this sudden bump when he became the candidate and then it completely disappeared and he turned out to be a pretty bad candidate and did very badly in the election. Something a little like that seems to have happened with, with Baerbock. So it now looks as if the most likely outcome is that she will be one of the leading green figures in a black-green coalition, in other words, a coalition led by the Christian Democrats with Laschet as Chancellor and... The Greens as a junior coalition partner, and then I think the big question becomes which ministries the Greens will have. Whether they want the the, the Foreign Ministry or, or, or other ministries, but again, they're even there. You know, it's not as if looking at the Greens' manifesto there is some massive policy difference with the Christian Democrats or, or the Social Democrats. There are slight differences of nuance, but they're broadly similar. The Greens also are part of this you know, centrist consensus uh, in Germany. And so, you know, whether it's on domestic policy or foreign policy, I I don't think um, they'll exert any huge influence in in one direction or or another.
0: So we're probably not going to see change simply because of the political structures that you outlined that exist in Germany. A recent survey by Das Prokursivitzentrum has shown that Germans actually do want change in the type of leadership that they experience, like a bit more, less of the miracle consensus and more of a straight-on acting and leading. And also, you know, potentially the surge of the Green Party, which used to be a very minor party that, you know, was just there, might indicate that Germans do want change, or as you said, that climate change is just a very dominant issue. Do the people want change? And how would that hypothetically work out in government if they had the option?
4: Yeah, I don't think Germans want change at all. That's not my impression. And if if they do want change, as I indicated earlier, I think it's they want change to you know to go back to how things used to be until quite recently. But broadly, no, no Germans, I think, are, are pretty happy with 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 how things are. They, are. they are anxious about the future, that's for sure. But I don't see any huge demand for change. And you know, I haven't seen the the, the survey you mentioned by just Progressive Centrum, but. I would be rather sceptical of it. And you know, if it is true that there is this clamour for change among Germans, then it makes you sort of wonder, well, then why don't they vote for somebody? Why haven't they v- voted for somebody over the last 16 years who will offer change? In terms of political style, it is quite interesting that the Chancellor before Merkel was Gerhard Schroeder, who did have a very different political style. He was known for being more decisive, a little bit more polarising in the sense that some people liked him, some people disliked him. He was quite a brash figure in in many ways. And Merkel is the sort of anti-Schroeder in in that respect. But as I say, she's now been Chancellor for 16 years. So there were plenty of opportunities along the way to elect somebody different. Having said all of that, I think part of this is structural in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, you're not voting for a, a particular Chancellor. So, given the way that the coalition dynamics work in Germany, sometimes the sort of rise and fall of different political parties has slightly unintended consequences. And in particular, the last election, the fact that the AFD did so well and entered the Bundestag, which is kind of a protest vote of a kind, there's certainly lots of people who voted for the AFD who are very angry about Merkel, particularly after the refugee crisis. But the paradoxical effect of the AFD in other words, a far-right party doing very well, is actually to increase the chances that you get a grand coalition in power. Because it means that the two, the centre-left and the centre-right parties, that's the only option left, really, in terms of forming a coalition. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there's 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 a bit of an indirect relationship between what the German people want and what they get at the end of an election. In terms of the Greens... I find it very difficult to see the Greens and Baerbock in particular as representing some kind of different political style. In particular, Annalena Baerbock, you know, there's been some speculation that of all of the the candidates for Chancellor, Baerbock is the one that Merkel would sort of like the most, as it were, and that she, if anything, represents a continuation of the Merkel style, not just because she's a woman, but but more broadly because because of her political style. Um, so I don't see that really as a, as, a, as a break at all. I think that part of the surge that you've described, you know, and we've seen this not just in Germany, but in other countries as well, is to do with the way that the issue of climate change is rising up the political agenda. But I think it's worth emphasising, particularly for an audience outside of Germany, that the German Greens are a little bit different from Green parties in other European countries. This isn't by any means a far left party. Um, it's changed over the last, you know, 30 years or so. By the way, when it first emerged at the at the, at the end of the 70s, beginning the 80s, it really wasn't clear that it was a left-wing party at all. It had some far-right figures within it. Then in the 1980s, it sort of coalesced into this uh, centre-left rather than far-left party. It's never had a far-left economic agenda. And over the last 10 years in particular, it sort of moved further to the, to the right, as it were, on economic policy, to the point where Wolfgang Streich, who's a German uh, political thinker, refers to the Greens as the vegetarian section of the Christian Democrats. You know, and I think there is something to that, um, that this, this isn't a far-left party in any, in any real recognisable sense, except on some of these issues around recognition rather than redistribution, so gender politics and, and, and so on. And um, there you there clearly are a, a left party. But on economic questions around redistribution, it's pretty far from clear that, that they're a left-wing party at all. And this is, again, why I think the Greens are part of this centrist consensus, rather than representing some sort of big break, even if they were to be you know, in the, in the chancellery, which increasingly, looks increasingly unlikely that they will be.
0: Okay, thank you so much for joining me today, Hans, and have a lovely afternoon.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, that's it for this episode. That was a really, really fascinating final interview, Lara. Thanks so much. Did you have any highlights from that, do you think?
0: I think highlights or lowlights, is more, you know, talking again about how change in German politics is so difficult to achieve, the way Mm. that our political party system is structured, and that despite having, you know, great or not great candidates, government leading forwards is probably not going to look much different to than what we've had the last few decades. Mm. But again, curious to see what's to come.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm sorry that we couldn't find uh, a a more positive note for you to end on. (laughs) (laughs) But they're few and far betweens in international relations at the moment. But Lara, thank you very much. I'll just leave it with saying I think it's been great to have you as a colleague and it's been great to have you on Undercurrents as well and hope to stay in touch and to see you again at Chatham House soon.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. Hosting Undercurrents was definitely very fun and I enjoyed it a lot. Nice
1: one. Thank you. Well, that is it for this episode. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and subscribe on whichever platform you're using to listen to this. And please tell your friends, because word of mouth is the gospel around here. It's how we get people to listen to us. Any help, much appreciated. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you. In the meantime, you can follow Chatham House's work on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or on social media on all of the different channels at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks very much for listening.